Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Really, Welcome to the Really 007 Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Pickup, and in tonight's episode, we'll be discussing... <laughs> the man with the golden gun! <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, gosh. I'm going to, you know, the start of a, what, 15-hour podcast and I've ruined my voice already. <laughs> Disastrous. Anyway, uh, we are building up quite the back catalogue of reviews, tributes, and specials. <laughs> that just sounds like everybody's dying, doesn't it? But um, <laughs> anyway, all of them can be found on iTunes and Spotify. Simply search for us at Really Double O Seven Pod. We're available on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you again search Really Double O Seven, and do feel free to join in on the daily debates. Special shout out on this episode to Mr. Gert Jan of Watering. I hope I've uh, pronounced that correct. Uh, and let's hope we fill you with more joy on this episode than we did with our Skyfall review. So. Sorry, Gert. Also, <laughs> another shout-out to Feedspot, who recently, well, not that recently now, uh, named us in the top 35 James Bond podcasts in the world. I mean, I don't know how many there are, but it's still pretty good, considering we only began in August 2020. So thank you guys at Feedspot for that. Right, tonight we have a bumper squad, a six-man squad, discussing the divisive Roger Moore kung fu movie. We have <laughs> Mr. John Kell. We don't have to say hello. We'll, you know, we'll go, we'll go uh, we have we have Chris Goldie. Bonjour, Mr. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. We have Harry Pickup. Hiya. Hiya. <laughs> uh, we also have Matthew Pickup. We are related. And special guest star tonight, Mr. Stephen Carty. I sure am, boy. <laughs> very good so if if you guys haven't heard the henchman episode yet uh Stephen carty is uh now hopefully a regular guest on the really 007 pod he sort of went into his background on that episode but 
I think if you haven't heard that, let's let's just have a little brief introduction to Mr. Carty. So, what, how did you sort of get into the world of James Bond, Stephen? We went away for a family holiday for the weekend, and I was ill. And when I came back, um, Doctor No was on the TV, and my dad said, "Well, you'll love this." And uh, just it was just luck that it was the, you know the first film. Um, I remember being hypnotised sort of five minutes into it, and then after that, just watched all of them. And I mean, I I love about. 10 of them, maybe 12 of them. I like nearly all of them. Um, I think there's something good in every single one of them. There's not... I mean, when I do my selective rewatch, I, I'm sure you guys are the same. There are, there are a couple that I skip. But over, over the years, I find my opinions change. Like, for example, when I was young, I loved You Only Live Twice. Now I'm a bit cooler on that. Um, I, I've never really got into From Russia With Love. I know that is complete sacrilege. But... It's it's not this sort of, in this parish. I, I can see why everyone <laughs> likes it, but I'm going to keep watching it until I like it. One of the things I found most surprising about Bond Twitter was the kind of hate for the man with the golden gun. <laughs> I, when I spoke to people in real life, real life, um, I'd never met anyone that hated it. And when we were talking before we recorded about the the ranking lists that um, uh, Better Make That Two is doing. And I was surprised to see how many people have it at the bottom or second bottom or near the bottom. I don't know how all you guys feel about it, but it's always been one of my favourites. I can see why people don't like it. But I, I was very surprised to find out how many people disliked it, like really hated it. I think when you're growing up as a kid watching them, mm-hmm. you don't know how well they're critically received, do you? You've not a clue. So you just, yeah. you are, your favourites are the ones that are your favourites. And mm-hmm. I know our older brother James, this, this is his favourite James Bond film and it still is. He he did the poll as well, and he <laughs> man with the golden gun came top. So <laughs> for a lot of fans, and he he's not as die hard and sort of sad as we are. He loves it, he especially loves Roger Moore, of course. Mm. And even though we will discuss that perhaps it's not the most Roger Moore performance in a in a Roger Moore Bond film, it's still got all those classic elements, and I can see why people like it. But yeah, I think you're right, Stephen. We will discuss. The various reasons, and uh, perhaps one of the members here tonight will be the prosecution attorney, Mr. John. Oh, Kell. so John, you're not a fan. He... Well, well, hang on. Oh, sorry. We spoil <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I'll, I'll allow John uh, an opening statement, uh, perhaps. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, yes. In terms of your job, you're a, you're a film critic, aren't you? Yeah, freelance film critic for about I think 2006 was my first review. Um, I read. I actually read it last night, and excuse my French, it was fucking disastrous. It was <laughs> <laughs> so full of pompous, pretentious, big words. I, I read it and I just thought, oh, I was clearly so desperate to let people know how much I knew about film, and I didn't have a clue. But yeah, so it was two thousand six, you say. So does that mean it was Casino Royale? That was my third review, actually. Sorry, I'd, I'd completely Sorry. forgotten that. I'd uh, used is that. it Marley and me? <laughs> it was a, it was a Daniel Craig film called Renaissance. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It was what? It was a sort of black and white animated film that no one ever heard of. <laughs> Still waiting for a Renaissance, then, isn't it? I think. <laughs> so I, I write for Radio Times and I go on the radio for BBC Radio Scotland, um, which has obviously been quite quiet recently. I'm sure you guys can understand. There's yeah. nothing to review at the moment, so let's just watch Bond over and over and over. Absolutely. <laughs> so we do have an expert amongst our ranks for once. Um, again, no offence in, intended to anybody else. Well, we're all professional amateurs now. I think. <laughs> Wednesday expert joining us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Yes. Yeah, so tonight we're talking about the man with the golden gun. 
This was, if you don't know, it was Roger Moore's second outing as James Bond. That's me talking to the audience. I'm sure the, the guys here know that. And it's often derided as one of the weakest entries in the series. Again, not a clue why. Perhaps we'll, we'll learn more. We'll learn more tonight. <laughs> However, I, as I've, as we've alluded to, I have it on good authority that a decent chunk of this panel are big fans of it. So fear not going into this episode, listeners. It, it won't be simply ripping it apart like that Skyfall film. And uh, we, we, we've been in a bit of trouble for that review, but we stand by it. We stand by it. So, yeah, on that episode, of course, it was John defending Skyfall versus everybody else. It could well be John silencing the golden gun versus everyone else tonight. Uh, just going through each actor's second appearances as 007, because I, I think we... We do do that uh, an awful lot and try and compare. We had the highly successful From Russia With Love for Sean, the outstanding Licence to Kill for Tim, the fun Tomorrow Never Dies for Pierce, and the... You know, I, I, whatever, put whatever whatever word you want to describe Quantum of Soul. Frustrating? I, I'm not going to get into that. Frustrating, <laughs> yeah. Stephen. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the ninth Bond film. And it came out in 1974, only a year later, after Roger Moore's debut in Live and Let Die. This would be producer Harry Saltzman's final as uh, as the co-producer with Cubby Broccoli until he sold his share. Now, Live and Let Die, Roger's debut, had been a big success after Honor Majesty's Secret Service, of course, was pretty, well, lukewarm and it was unfairly overlooked at the time. So the producers immediately set about work on the next one after the success of Live and Let Die. Shooting started just five months after the premiere. So, I mean, just just think about that in these times of... We keep going on about on this podcast, waiting over half a decade for this blessed film to come out. But anyway, there you go. More more, more, more years have gone by than the months have gone by after the last... So they started shooting film, yeah. five months after, did you say? Shooting? Yeah, shooting, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they must have so, had all the story all Yeah, ready to go. Yeah. So in this film, Bond must find out who is handing out golden bullets and why one is marked for him. He sent after the Solex Agitator a breakthrough solution to energy shortages. Shortages. <laughs> His mission takes him to Beirut, Hong Kong, Macau and Thailand. And along his way, he meets the mysterious Nicknack, the less than mysterious Mary Goodnight... And the titular, the man with the golden gun. You got it. Mm, very good. <laughs> it's very titillating. Yeah. yeah, very good. What do you know about a man called Scaramanga? The man with the golden gun. He always uses a golden bullet. This trinket was sent with a note requesting special delivery to you. I've never seen Mr. Scaramanga. Mr. Bond, this is impossible. I can't... Roger Moore, back in action in the exotic east as James Bond, 007, on a collision course with the most dangerous man alive. The man with the golden gun. Hold on, sir. James Bond, on the job. The girls are willing. I've dreamed about you setting me free. The pace is killing Stay in there, good night. We've got you spotted. 
How about a demonstration, boy? Certainly, sir. You'll meet old friends and new enemies. It's non-stop bomb. The action is spectacular. You're not. I sure am, boy. Reaching a new high for 007. Bonjour, Monsieur Bond. I am Nick Nut. Monsieur Scaramanga will welcome you personally. The target is the highest priced killer in the world. He plays a deadly game, and the stakes are sky high. So, we've uh, gone in, in the intro, we've found out a little bit what we think of the film, but let's just ask around the table what our particular relationship with the man with the golden gun is. Not him, he's a fictional character, but the film. So first of all, I'll, I'll turn my attention to Harry. I, I don't know if I can wrap it all up in you know a short paragraph, but it's one that's always been uh, fondly remembered you know, from childhood. In my um, appearance on the From Russia With Love, Episode. I did say that Sean Connery was probably my favourite Bond. Certainly, he is at the moment. Um, but growing up, Roger Moore, he was he was in the Bond films that we returned to most of all. And the Man with the Golden Gun was one of those that we returned to. And it was probably for all the the set pieces, the brilliant villain, um, the setting, the music, all things that became really really familiar to us. Um, so I, I have it in my memory, really, really fondly. Um, but as is good with this podcast, and um, as you kind of always do with Bond films, you, you watch them and you re-watch them, and you, when you re-watch them, you've got kind of a different mind, different, um, you know, you look at things differently. And as you mature, you try to be perhaps a bit more critical. The Man with the Gone Gun probably serves up a few things that you can be critical of, I think. You perhaps wouldn't choose... To, well, sorry, I wouldn't perhaps choose to do as um, as the writer and possibly the director, but at the same time, whilst also trying to be mature about it, I've also got to stop being so mature about it and you know look at it for its enjoyment value and for the reaction I get from it, watching each scene um, and following the story and engaging with the characters, and I still really, really like it. It still holds up for those reasons. So I'm perfectly willing to accept that it's flawed, it's faulted, but I still really, really enjoy watching it. I think I'll hold off from asking where you put it in your recent View to a Trill rankings, because we'll, we'll save that for the end, because who knows, it might have, by the, the time we've discussed it and discussed it, it might have even gone up or down since you did that uh, quiz. Chris, just in terms of growing up, when did you first watch it? Uh, I, was, well, I was a kid. Um, I can't remember exactly when uh, I watched it, or where, where, where it kind of falls in, you know, watching the other films. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, I loved it as a kid. I thought, um, I loved the fact that the villain has... A gun that he builds, you know, that is that he is essentially, you know, as he says, kind of 007's equal. They're very similar in what they do. I loved Christopher Lee, you know, having kind of grown up with with him and in, in a lot of, you know, obviously the horror films, Hammer horror films, and stuff like <laughs> should that. Should have been watching them. You shouldn't have been watching. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it was always I, I always I always really liked it. I think like I think similar to, to to Harry. I think I think watching it again now, it doesn't it doesn't flow. It's a bit disjointed at times. But and there are some scenes where I think I, this oh, Roger looks a bit uncomfortable with this, and I can understand why and. But you know, it's still 
a solid Bond film. It would, I don't, I can't remember where I, where I listed it, but it's certainly not one that I pass over very often. It's always one that I've, I've, I've always enjoyed. And I think, I, I think to be honest with you, I think watching it this time I enjoyed it more than Living Like Die. Ooh, and I don't know if that's because of John Barry's music, <laughs> and because John Barry's music for me always elevates the film. You can have a an okay Bond film, but when it's scored by him, it's magical and I think that's the, I think that's the big difference between that and, and Living Like Die for me is, is Barry's score If I remember Chris I think it was your top three Honour Majesties from Rush With Love and The Living Daylights Yeah Because they're all unbelievable Barry scores aren't they Yes And this score was I've had many arguments with uh, people even in this household about you know, <laughs> the theme song and I oh, I, stand, get to that, my I stand firm on you know um, on that and and it's a score I, I, I continue I listen to it again and again it's one that I've in past kind of since doing this podcast and listening to a lot more kind of uh, Bond things that it's definitely that score that stands out for me as, as, as a highlight for, for, for Barry Gorgeous Math, what were your views growing up of this film? So, if I remember rightly, we had it on video and then it might have got a bit taped over or something. So there was a period when we didn't mm. have it for a while. And so, yeah. when we went on holiday, I think we went to to Florida for, for, on holiday. I don't know why it took, a, took us to go to Florida to get a video copy of it. but we, Oh, yeah. We, we did. This. And we also got Star Wars A New Hope, and that was the first time I'd seen that. But anyway... When we came back, it only sh- we in our video record it would only video play it, it would only play it black and white. I don't know why. So, Such a good memory. So about it, it like yeah. it took us a, it took me a bit to have. Although I had some familiarity with the film, it took took quite a while for me to be as familiar as I am with other films. Having said that, I was still you know a child, so you know I've got I've got fond memories of watching it in terms of i know you know we said we won't go into rankings necessarily but it, it's it's a, actually i just checked it sits just below skyfall in my uh, in my rankings oh, so, uh, <laughs> but i yeah you're a, you're a defender I, I i yeah i i i would say with both of them in different ways i enjoy watching both of them and i i like you know if i saw that one was either of those was on i would continue watching it cause, you, you know Unless I had something else planned, in which case I might change. But um, no, I, I think I think this one I really like loads of things about it. I think one of the reasons I've never felt I'd ever put it right up there is perhaps because of, and I'll bore you with this all the time. Every time I'm on here, it's just the overall lack of a big scheme that the villains doing it but that might be because i've never really watched it and tried to understand what the energy crisis is and and so agitator and, and everything but you know what i mean there's nothing he i'm not quite sure what bond's trying to thwart but maybe you guys can enlighten me on that so i find it a really enjoyable one there are films probably particularly something like casino royale where i can see that that's probably like a better made that's a better made film and everything but something like this i would enjoy more watching more and we be more likely to put it on john no i mean my my, my um my experience with this film was i think i said last time about the spy who loved me when um when i said i was into it my mum bought me the spy who loved me for christmas she also bought me the man with the golden gun so they were the first two bond films that i owned and growing up uh, me and my brother david we absolutely loved this film this was i would probably say if 
especially like as a 10 year old if anybody asked me what's your favorite bond film i'd probably say that because i watched it the most and yet about five years ago i had I, we went back through doing the the uh the films and we were trying to get david was trying to get his girlfriend into watching uh bond films and she was loving them i mean she's a massive connery fan so they went through chronologically and she was loving the connery film. and i was desperately trying to get rachel into them. and we watched it one night together as a four alex and rachel just tore this film apart and they're just like i'm sorry but that's wrong that's wrong that's wrong and i sat there and i was like yeah you're right (laughs) they had this horrific experience with it that i was just like wow this is a really it has i think mass spot on where he says there's great parts to it because there are there's little moments where you can really enjoy but when you take a step back you go oh my word this isn't it's it's less than the sum of its parts by quite a long way having watched it again recently i enjoy it you know i'm not i'm not going to be slating it saying it's it's a a horrible watch or anything it's in it's in that same camp as diamonds are forever me i enjoy it quite literally the same camp (laughs) but there's certain decisions that are made there's certain plot points there's certain strands and i think the energy crisis is very much one of them that i look back and i go if i want to look at this critically which when i do look at the my rankings that's what i do go off I, i think no i'm not sure about that but i certainly don't hate the film i don't think it's a great film but it's enjoyable that's probably where i'm at with this film fair john Stephen, when we were discussing which which of these review episodes you'd like to come on board on you this was one of the first films you named so i'm i'm hoping you're a big fan of it i am um a big fan of it always have been this was one of the ones that when i did my my first first rewatch in a few years i still really liked and it held up for me and I completely agree with what John was saying there that um, I've read a lot of criticism about, about this film because what I like to do is when I see a film that I enjoy and people are tearing it apart, I quite like to look at the reasons why they dislike it and then think, okay, right, like, let's see if, if I'm missing something here. Same with if someone really likes a film that I hate, I'll see, right, why do they like it and what have I missed? Like I was saying earlier, when I read all these really sort of negative opinions from Bond Twitter about the man with the golden gun, it being down the bottom of a lot of rankings, I looked into why, and I even spoke to a few people and said, why is it you hate it so much? Then I went back and watched it, and a lot of the criticisms I can't really deny. I mean, you wouldn't deny someone's criticisms. Everyone's criticisms are valid. But a lot of the things that they were pointing out, I thought, yeah, yeah, you're right. The, the plot is a bit of a mess. This scene doesn't make sense. This scene doesn't make sense. This bit doesn't connect. I think that um, when it comes to Bond films, we've all got the different boxes that we want ticked. We've all got specific things that we need to see uh, and we all had different preferences. Personally, I quite like the smaller scale Bond films and the ones with a little bit of a darker tone. I can absolutely see why if you love Roger and you know you want smooth Roger, you want um, charming Roger, then this is not going to be the film for you. I quite like it when Roger leans into the dark side of Bond because I think he's really good at it. I mean, obviously, he's great at the one-liners. We know he can do the one-liners and you know he can walk across the dance floor with huge flares that enter the room before he does and he can just... <laughs> wink at a woman he can he can do all that but i love it when he you know he'll kill someone in a dark way like when he shoots the the kid and octopusy in the forehead or when he kicks Locke's car over the cliff i know that you read these stories and everything you read says roger hated doing that roger hated doing that and roger hated doing that and you know he wouldn't run up the stairs and fair enough i still think he's really good at it and 
The Man with the Golden Gun is probably his darkest performance. I'd say it's even darker than For Your Eyes Only. But I still like watching him in it. I still think he's got enough charm so that he's not dislikable. And at the end of the day, Bond is a brutal killer. He he is a bastard. He's a, If you read the books, he's a snobby, cold-blooded bastard. Roger just brings that likability to him. I think when you watch the Roger films over and over, you almost forget that he's supposed to be a brutal, cold-hearted assassin because Roger is so charming. Um, so when you watch The Man with the Golden Gun and he leans into that side of it, it's a bit jarring. I can imagine someone, if this was your first Roger film, you'd be a bit like, ooh, okay, didn't see this coming from his reputation. For me, it does enough of the things that I like that I can forgive the things that are wrong with it. And there is a lot wrong with it, but I'm sure we'll get into that. Normally, we, we might go over what we think about the actor in the film, but I think I know everyone's opinions on Roger Moore. And it's a bit of an odd question because, like I say, in this film, it's not really the same Roger Moore who's in, say, Octopussy, which is the other the other one we've done so far. So we'll discuss Roger's performance as we go along because there are some unusual decisions made, perhaps by the director. Or... Hi, I'm Rob. I'm Simon. And I'm James. We want to talk about those movies. Those supposedly bad movies. Those movies that bombed. To see if they weren't that bad after all. Join us every week on the For Your Reconsideration podcast, part of the Flickering Myth podcast network. You can catch us on iTunes, on Spotify, and all the usual streaming apps. And it won't cost you a solitary bean, mate. <laughs> it's like it's free. <laughs> it's just like it's free. <laughs> Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman intended to follow You Only Live Twice with this film and uh, and Roger Moore in the role, because, of course, Sean Connery said that was going to be his last film then. They even had Cambodia set as the uh, planned location to film in. But then the Sumlaut uprising, I'm told, made that impractical. And then the delay meant they shifted to Honor Majesty's Secret Service instead. Then, of course, I don't know, I'm not sure why Roger didn't do it. I'm sure people will tell us. But it was, of course, decided that George Lazenby would, would do that. After that film and Sean's return ended in Diamonds Are Forever, it was decided to finally film Golden Gun in Southeast Asia. So they'd already sort of made that decision, I think, before they'd even started filming Love and Let Die. The story is loosely based on the 1965 Ian Fleming novel of the same name, which was actually the first novel released after his death, about a year after he died. It's largely set in Jamaica, the film, sorry, the the novel, so because the previous film had been in Jamaica and we'd already been there in Dr. No, again, the producers thought, we don't really need to see that again, we're trying to show these exotic locales, so they shifted it to the Far East. Part of the film is set in Beirut, so location scouting was initially done for Iran because they didn't really think there was much going on in Beirut that was filmable and it would have been obviously quite a difficult place to do. But again, even Iran had to be stopped because of something called the Yom Kippur War. So <laughs> there seems to be a lot of conflicts going on wherever they tried to, to start. Now, production designer Peter Merton, he suggested Phuket Bay purely from looking at pictures of the place. That was it, I think. And this this prompted the producers to say, oh, that looks absolutely amazing. Let's relocate to Thailand, which now, I mean, we think of it as a pretty standard go-to Western tourist destination, well, for Westerners. But at the time, it was a pretty remote location, Uh, especially the the island, Scaramanga's Island, where I don't know whether anyone had been uh, before. So it was, again, groundbreaking James Bond location at the time. Also, though, of course, the film is set in the face of the 1973 energy crisis. Again, this is not a history lesson, but I had a clue. Never, don't really know an awful lot about that. And Britain apparently hadn't fully recovered from that by the time 
of the even the release of the film a year later. The other elements that are involved in this film, John, of course, has already mentioned them in previous episode. Uh, perhaps the mid seventies sort of slew of martial arts and kung fu films, which might have had a slight impact on one or two of the scenes. <laughs> Uh, particular one, one big set piece, extended set piece. So, Mank, good old Mank, Tom Mankovitz, not the original <laughs> one, but uh, we won't, we won't go into uh, the David Finch film now. We're we're all friends here now, so we don't really want to <laughs> go into that. As if I've seen it, honestly. Anyway, he, Tom Mankovitz, he did the first draft, and he came up with the idea of pitting Bond and Scaramanga against each other in a battle of wills. I'd say this is arguably the first of the has Bond finally met his match opponents uh, because both were criminal masterminds and a physical threat. Maybe, maybe you disagree. I know there's, I know there's a Don, uh, Donald Grant, perhaps, but he's not the criminal mastermind. It's not his scheme, is it? He's, he's a paid assassin, effectively. I think you'd, Zorin is possibly one, which would come later, although physically I'm not sure. Not really sure. Yeah, yeah, fair enough, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then obviously we get Alex Trevelyan, we get Renard, but obviously the twist was that he wasn't the main mastermind, and Raul Silver. So re- I'd, you could argue that really Scaramanga, Trevelyan and Silver are the sort of trilogy of physical threats that could actually take on Bond, as well as be criminal masterminds. Matthew? Yeah, just on that point, I, I think I remember reading that one of the reasons they changed from Donald Pleasance to Telly Savalas for uh, On a Majesty's Secret Service was to make him more of a physical threat. So he could perhaps say, even though you know it's the same character as been as has been you know Blofeld through various films, perhaps that one is one where he's both a physical threat and a you know obviously clearly intellectual criminal mastermind. So I was just going to chuck him, particularly in that film. Because then again, we then we get to Charles Gray and you know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, you're right. The Telly Savalas, Blofeld, and even Kananga, they're probably you know they're probably decent physical threat, but they they've all got henchmen, haven't they? They've got people to do that sort of thing for them. I've never understood that. Can someone talk me through the Kananga knife thing? That always I think. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> so odd. It's I like it. Unusual. It's sort of that whole seventies mysterious. Oh, yeah, with a bit of a giggle as well. Yeah. The Baron Sandy, it's all a bit scary. But anyway, back to this film. But really, apart from, like I say, Trevelyan and Silver, Scaramanga's the only sort of one who comes up in that ilk. And of course, we don't see him fight Silver, another another dig. So we get that great, great underrated, I think. People don't seem to mention it enough, the Trevelyan fight scene in the uh, the crater, the uh, the satellite dish. I mean, that's, that's a terrific fight, isn't it? This, of course, we don't see a fist fight. We have a duel, a classic duel. Tensions between Mank and Guy Hamilton led to Richard Maybaum yet again delivering a draft. Of course, he'd written pretty much every Bond film from the beginning until Licence to Kill, I think, was his last one. He sidelined the duality of Bond and Scaramanga somewhat because I think that it was going on a bit. And even though it is one of the main themes in the film, he sidelined it in favour of this Solex MacGuffin. And Michael G. Wilson was tasked with researching solar power to adapt it to the plot. So I think this is one of the first times he was directly involved with the screenwriting. Because as we've mentioned, I think it was Dick Maybaum and him, Ray co-wrote all of the 80s, the John Glenn film. A bit like Purvis and Wade deserve credit for The World Is Not Enough. Certainly at least. <laughs> Michael G. Wilson was onto, onto the task back then. Just before we get to Guy Hamilton, the, the cinematographer, Ted Moore, he'd 
shot all the previous films apart from You Only Live Twice and Honor Majesties, which possibly the best shot films of the ones that have been done to that day. He actually, this was his last Bond film, and he stopped due to illness when they'd done all the location shoots. And he was replaced with a guy called Oswald Morris. I'll be honest, I didn't know an awful lot about this guy. But he has got three Oscar nominations for cinematography for Oliver, which I think has come up come up a couple of times in there, I'm not sure why. <laughs> the Wiz, yeah. The Motown version, the musical of The Wizard of Oz, that got the nomination for cinematography. And Fiddler on the Roof, which he won an Oscar for. You know, we, we say on the new films, they sort of keep bringing in these Oscar-winning people they were doing back then. Was that the one with Top Hall? Yes, yeah. Good connection. Good Bond connection. He's also, other notable films he'd done, some absolute crackers again here. Moby Dick, the Gregory Peck one. Uh, Lolita, the Kubrick one, not the brilliant remake with Jeremy Irons. The Hill Upon I was going to say The Hill Upon On Which I Will Die. Oswald Morris did The Hill. Which is, uh, <laughs> of course, the link there, not just Sean Connery, but Chris Goldie, one of his favourite films here. Uh, Sydney Lumet film, yeah. Other ones he did, Goodbye Mr. Chips, slightly different. Which <laughs> The Albert Finney Scrooge, which I did manage to see over Christmas, yeah. Sleuth, not the, not the remake. I've only seen the remake, actually, with um, Jude Law and Michael Caine, isn't it? Caine's in the original, isn't he? Christopher Reeve, yeah, isn't he? he played a different part. Uh, Laurence Olivier. Four. What am I thinking of? Doesn't matter. Uh, is that Knight? Uh, what's he called? Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. <coughs> the uh, Yeah, Christopher Reeve and Michael Caine. Knight. Oh, that's another one I'm going to remember at like one in the morning. Um, <laughs> Rob will be I know, I know the one there. you're thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, other films he did, just three more, you know, it's an exhaustive list, but... Um, <laughs> the the Odessa File, another Michael Caine, all linked, I think, that was, was that Ernie on uh, Saltzman and Broccoli? Also, The Man Who Would Be King, again, Caine and Connery, saw it recently, wasn't it? Didn't really do it for me. Uh, and his last film was The Dark Crystal. Oh. So, yeah. Bit of a change there, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well shot, though. So. Oh, Beautiful. What a guy to come in for this. So enough about uh, him and Ted Moore. We'll, we'll go on to Guy Hamilton, the director. So Mervyn Ian Guy Hamilton, as of course you as you all know him as, <laughs> he'd obviously done three previous Bond films. He'd done Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, and Live and Let Die. So and I've seen Calvin Dyson's video of rating all the directors. I don't think he rates him particularly highly, but these are pretty four. Okay, well, yeah. Yeah, Pretty reasonable. Out out of how many? Seven? Seven. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm just being honest. Yeah, Yeah, so he's done four pretty famous films, I'd say, hasn't he? In the the Bond canon. Pretty iconic films. Very controversial and divisive, some of them are. Especially Goldfinger. I keep seeing criticisms of it on Twitter. I just don't... Cannot understand him getting fed up of it. Clearly, anyway, we'll, we'll, we will we will discuss Guy Hamilton probably maybe more in, in a Goldfinger episode. I didn't realise though he turned down Doctor No. They've started off the whole. The only things he said about this film that I could garner were that he he said he instructed Roger Moore not to mimic Connery. Well, that is I think strange. Roger Moore might might say it in a different way around. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Out of the four films he'd done, Bond films, this is the only one he regretted making. So how depressing is that? <laughs> it seems a bit strange there's a recurrent trend then because I'm sure Lulu says that she doesn't rate her own theme tune and John Barry says the score was one of his least favourite. Yeah. And tell me that Guy I... Hamlin didn't like the film. It's just... I'm sure you've probably got something on this, Tom, but 
it's pretty well known that around this time there's a massive bust up between Saltzman and Broccoli, mm. isn't there? And the whole production around it isn't great. And you just wonder if like it was just an unhappy place to work with work at. I actually reading around it, apparently Saltzman and Broccoli were almost taking in turns to produce each film. Like what you do this one, I'll do the next one, which is so odd. Mm. So that that does suggest that things were weren't going on very well. Um but yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, like I say, we'll, we'll go into more detail on him on future episodes, but he was a bit of a James Bond figure again, a bit like Terence Young, having served in the Royal Navy. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, so if you know, for heroism. He, a couple of two, a uh, couple of films he was meant to direct, but turned down or couldn't do due to scheduling conflicts. Just Superman and Batman. I mean, come on, 1989, bringing out Guy Hamilton. <laughs> I presume it was when it was. I presume that was way before it actually got made, you know, because it will have taken many forms, mm. wouldn't it? Right, John. Yeah, it was written by Mankiewicz because obviously. Yes, it was Superman. Yeah, mm. the Superman Link. Yeah, mm. correct. Yeah. Can the man do any wrong? Superman. Yeah, very. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Batman. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, a few of us no. are Manx here as well, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, in fact, that was Steven's joke on Twitter, so I will credit my sources. Was it? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I don't remember uh, Well, that. okay. I'll take the credit. Yeah, take, <laughs> yeah, take, yeah. <laughs> take it. Steven, just for your benefit um we always do a quiz every single film that we do um it's five questions and we see who wins that round the way that we do it is i'll ask a question and we will have a buzzer that is relevant to that round to this film um whoever answers the buzzer first means that they can answer the question and we'll see who gets the win I think at the moment I think it's uh, neck and neck between Chris and Math at the top I think possibly uh, which is quite good um, so I was, it was between one or two things but I think it would be more entertaining the buzz we're going to have today is I want to hear three Jula Jula <laughs> <laughs> If I hear that, Super. Yeah. <laughs> very good job. <laughs> so, question one: What double O number was Bill Fairbanks? Jula, Jula, Jula. That's Chris. Chris's dulcet tones there. Double O two is correct. Yeah, Chris loves his double O agents. I do. <laughs> mm, yeah. Okay. Question two. Which secret service first recruited and trained Scaramanga? Chula, Chula, Chula. Yeah? That was just so a <laughs> real lack of confidence in that. Is it uh, KGB? It was the KGB, yes. Yeah. Chula! 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 Yeah! <laughs> Question three. Um, what occupation did Scaramanga's mother have? Chula. Go on, I want two more, Stephen, if that's all right. Oh, Chula, <laughs> Chula. <laughs> Go on, what is it? It's completely, it's completely went out of my head now. The third Chula. Well, someone else goes, go on. Chula. Go on, Harry. 
Um, did you say his mum? Yeah. I know the British snake charmer. Correct. Opposed <laughs> <laughs> to an Italian snake. Well, I. Is the son of Cuban. Yeah, Cuban circus ringmaster is his dad. <laughs> And then, Harry, this could yeah. be the first point. This could be the first win, man. Yeah, who'd have thought? How embarrassing for the rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> All green Rolls Royces in Hong Kong belong to which hotel? Chula. 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 Go on, The Peninsula Hotel. Correct. <laughs> 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 best Swedish accent. <laughs> <laughs> or, or could have been... Nikki Van Zyl, the who dubbed her. Yeah. And I'm going to be a bit, bit harsh on this last one. I want... If you answer it and you don't have it on them all, or you answer them correctly, you're going to lose a point. So... Oh. <laughs> okay. Harry, stay silent. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what four items make up the golden... Chula, chula, chula. <sighs> oh, go on, Stephen. So it's a lighter, a cigarette case... Cufflink and a pen. Whoa. Whoa. Well Spot done. On. Very good. Four points, John. Uh, it's not now. Uh, so <laughs> Harry Pickup gets his first victory of the really 007 season. Get in there, Chula, 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 Chula. Chula. Well done, Stephen. I I always forget though the uh, cufflink oh, yeah. being the trigger. Yeah. I always forget that. Yeah. Which I think is so good, isn't it? That gorgeous, isn't it? That so good. So if you see him going around with a, a loose, cut, yeah, one missing, like, always, and, he's, and if he's made love, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Such quotable, brilliant film. Right. Mm. We've got to the film. Seems a bit previous, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, wow. it's a bit like the opposite of flying a plane when they say, we'll make up time in the air. We'll lose some time. <laughs> right, straight into the gun barrel sequence. I'm told it's the first one to drop the pluck guitar. I did read that it's um, his last one in a, the last gun barrel sequence in a business suit. The rest are all tuxedos from that point on. Does that seem right to you? Yeah. The flares can't remain, can they? Yeah. I think they. I've always thought that they were the same from Few Rise Only onwards. Are they? Or is, is he not? Spy, is a spy onwards. Is he not wheeled in on a view to a kill? <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. Oi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> less, less of that. Yeah. It's quite a fast. Lovely fast beat, isn't it? The the theme when it comes in. Yeah. So J- John Barry, we'll, we'll touch on him over the whole thing, but this was his first Roger Moore film, of course, first Roger Moore Bond film, and it's like from now on he goes into the more much in horns based stuff rather than the sort of sixties beat, you know, kind of yeah, like you say, heavy on the guitar. 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And I just, you know, the guy just gets better and better possibly for me, especially with these Bond uh, scores. Not to say that, you know, the early ones aren't that good. I mean, dear me, they're incredible, aren't they? But George Martin in Live and Let Die was just did everything it needed to do and it's pretty pretty underrated particularly I don't know how much of a composer he is but anyway uh, I know John's more of a Beatles man and we might we'll go into that in that episode but well we were talking off air just now about how I just can't see the series without John Barry even a film like this where he himself said he didn't rate it he thought it was one of his least effective scores um, I love that little I'm not sure what you'd call it a cue or a frame, maybe the little five note thing that he does throughout the film, you know, the da 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 da. And then it yeah, goes, yeah. Oh. every time you yes. do that, I think, yes, I'm up for this action scene. It's, oh. it's, it's a little bit repetitive, but I don't care because I love it that much. Just da 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 da. And, then and unique, unique to the film as well. Yeah. <clears throat> do you know how long he had to um, compose this soundtrack? Uh, yes. I'd, I, was it three weeks, Harry? Three weeks. Three weeks, yeah. Three weeks to get it wrapped up. Absolutely. To compose all that music, <laughs> record it, and, and make it fit the film. But just for the fun house could take months, couldn't it? I mean, yeah. Different breed, isn't it? Yeah, so my main thoughts about the score, I really like the melody. I think there's a lot of use of the theme tune in, in different places, um, and I think it's quite good in terms of, like, the I like the string theme, and the um, especially with, like, Scaramanga and uh, Miss Anders, I love all that. You can tell it's rushed. It's more in places where the score isn't there as opposed to the score itself. I think of some of the action scenes and I think of... um, There's very little intensity in the two action scenes such as the boat chase and the car chase. I think that they would benefit from and a more intense score of this score. I mean, if you think of, like, there's bits in it where it goes, and it feels like that should kick on and to bring in the theme, but it doesn't. And I think that stuff like the the car loop, which is a phenomenal stun, would just really benefit from some James Bond theme in it. I understand that in Live and Let Die, there was, lo- there was no Bond theme. There was no score, even, throughout the boat chase. But that was because it was a deliberately long-winded boat chase that you could build up tension with. Both those action scenes in The Man with the Golden Gun are short and fast-paced, and I think they need a score to go with them that actually complements that. But in terms of the actual score and listening to it, I really like it. Uh, It's one that I can certainly listen to on its own, probably more than actually in the film. 
But I just think with a bit more time and a bit more polish, it could have been even more effective within the film. Those are the opening submissions from the prosecution lawyer, John <laughs> I was just going to say, it, it reminds me of Thunderball in that way, that it's quite repetitive, that it's the same themes you hear throughout the film. Thunderball's a bit like that as well. It's the same stuff again and again and again. And I suppose if you like it, it's not a big deal. But if you, when, once you do notice it, you think, yeah, that's the same thing. And I've heard that again and I've heard that again. But With that, I think he's almost uh, an author of his own misfortune. And especially when you've seen them many times in Thunderball, what, there's how many different themes are there? There's quite a few. There's maybe like four main themes. There's the Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. There's the title theme. There's the... You know, there's... So, <laughs> yeah. No, but how many themes were there in Skyfall and Spectre? If you just do... If you just do cues, which are just to do with the individual C, that aren't memorable, no one will say, oh, that was a repetitive score. There's something that I've been trying to put my finger on with John Barry for years, and it's like... He makes he makes the sound of something, and what I mean by that is, when you watch Thunderbolt, he he makes the sound of underwater. I, don't, I can't really yeah, yeah. any better than it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Same with if I went to Vegas and I didn't hear the you know the theme tune from, <laughs> do, 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 I'd be a bit yeah, disappointed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, that's it's the same with whenever you go. Well, when you go skiing, you know the on a Majesty's theme. Yeah. Not that everyone goes skiing. That wasn't. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't been many times in my life. He just has this way of making, capturing the feeling of what you think it will be like. I mean, I'm never going yeah. to go to space, but I imagine I know what it's going to sound like now. Oh, of... yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tim, uh, I've forgotten his name now. Tim Peake. He must have had that on his, his Walkman on the way into space. <laughs> um, what do you go with, though? Do you go with Space Capsule from You Only Live Twice, or do you go with the one from Moonraker where he's shooting down the globes? I, which one? I think Flying to Space for me. Possibly the greatest piece he's ever written. But we'll get on to its oh. rivals in this film. No, yes, no, no. yeah. I know what you're saying, John. In terms of, yeah, there are certain breaks in the film where it's silent. That was one of the criticisms of Live and Let Die, the boat chase, wasn't it? That was totally unscored. Part of the reason they did that was because the sound of those engines, of those amazing cars, and the sort of the Bangkok hustle and bustle. I'm only guessing here now, but just to really emphasise the power of the engines and the the realism of that scene. You called John. You wrapping up one there. Sorry. There's Sorry. <laughs> there is this sense though. Interestingly, though, we said at the start, you know, we were impressed and wowed that only five months later they began shooting. But now there's this suggestion, and I don't know what my opinion is on it, that perhaps the soundtrack, you know, could have done with more time, and you know there was quarrelling behind the scenes, and I'm sure there was some decisions that were actually taken out of John Barry's hands with probably with regard to some things. And then there's like <clears throat> complaints that the the re- release poster was just a rehash of Live and Let Die. It's it, you know it's like was it perhaps too quickly released the film? Is that is that perhaps uh, a yeah? I ma- I imagine solution. that is something because of course it was then the biggest gap between you know the, at that time wasn't it? Yeah, three yeah. years to was that the biggest yeah, yeah. gap? Oh no, it's equal. Yeah, it was. No, no, no it was no, the biggest. Was yeah, the biggest yeah. Spy was yeah. seventy seven, I think. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. I th- that might have part of them to do the legal stuff but, as well, yeah. But um, yeah, yeah. But it's weird. There's loads of films, though, aren't there? With oh, it was last minute productions, and you know, and like even Die Hard. You know, we've been I was reading about that. There's loads of sort of last minute changes and things, and didn't realise that it was going to turn out well until the edit. And yeah, I'm not. I know. Even with from Russia, for, even with yeah, from, from Russia, Russia loving our review, we, we talked about all the things where. They had to U-turn on decisions and change the minds on set there and then, and it worked out for the better. But perhaps 
some people can see it more in this film than others. Like Peter Hunt accidentally, because of a rush, inventing incredible new editing techniques. <laughs> it's incredible. That was amazing. Yeah. We're making up time. Sorry, we're losing time. We're losing time. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. So the pre-title sequence, I've, I'm going to put it out there. I think it's one of the best in the entire series. James Bond isn't in it. Another one of those. Chris, in terms of that opening shot, I think they wanted to sort of just show that it's drawing the viewer into the sort of exotic world. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't say it's one of the best, in my, in, like, in my opinion, but I, I, it really does sort of grab you. And How does that grab you? Sorry. <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, there's, and I, you know, straight off, it's Chris, you know, you've got Christopher Lee, you know, obviously Moore Adams, you've got this great setup. It's like, well, what, what's, you know, What's happening here? Why is he giving him money for? The, why yeah. is he trying to kill it? You know, when I remember as a kid thinking, "Well, what was happening?" It was quite, quite confusing. You know, Christopher Lee looks ace in his tracksuit. Um, the music is great, and the, 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 just the way as the scene changes, and you got the fun house element. The way that he goes from like cowboy kind of, you know, kind of theme tunes to you know gangsters, and all that. it's just it's so, so much fun. And then the, the the fun house with the it just throws you completely. You got the wonky sets, you know, almost like the Hall of Mirrors in you know, like Lady from Shanghai. You know, there's a kind of it, it just straight off. Who's you know with the, what's the guy? He, obviously, if you've seen Diamonds oh, Are yeah. Forever, Mark Lawrence. You think yeah. you hang on a minute? I thought what, is <laughs> yeah, that the same, yeah. is that the same <laughs> character? You know, same character. <laughs> yeah. So you, you know, I, I think it is it is great because it is confusing and you are expecting where's you know where's Bond oh there he is there's is that oh, Roger yeah. Moore with a tash being as a gunfighter you know, <laughs> yeah. is that you know and then having the reveal with the, the with the, the, the sort of the mannequin you know waxwork version of him it's, it's a I, I, yeah it is a great opening and it's not it's not the kind of traditional you know obviously later on the big stunts kind of set piece of you know this is you know his first mission it's Look at this guy. Look how effective he is. Look at what a great assassin this, he is. I want you want to know more about him. And that bit when he clicks the button, you know, puts his hand on the button, and the stairs turn, and he slides down. I can't. And he flips, just, grabs the gun, and shoots it. You know, you would be clapping, wouldn't you? You know, yeah. that is a that is a yeah. brilliant opening. And then to turn, and there's, like I say, that waxwork of Bond. And he shoots all his fingers off. It is a great opening. I, th- I think if you stopped and you were like completely cold and critical about the that that part, if you just say you had an elevated position and you could look at the funhouse, and you would say, "Well, he's going to see Scar. How can he not see Scar? Man, he's like two feet away from him. Why is he not shooting him?" And then, hold on, he knows what Bond looks like. He's got a statue of Bond. Yeah, so, yeah. so many things, you, so many things you could pick at. Yeah, it's just as you say, it's just awesome when he slides down the steps and then does the does a little roll and then I love when he shoots the four fingers off. It's completely unnecessary. You just think to yourself, how much did you pay for that statue? I bet you commissioned someone. I bet that took ages for you to make. And you've just blown off four fingers for no reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, it's just immensely cool. And I think, as you were saying, it, the purpose of it is clearly to say, this guy is an elite assassin. He's got an awesome aim. And it works from that. For me, That's it achieves its aim. I um, equally love it. And... There's certain parallels you can also make with From Russia with Love, where there's you know there's an assassin out there who's got Bond as his trophy, and there's like this admiration, this idea of wanting to challenge uh, himself, which 
I love. Um, and like you mentioned earlier, you know, it's the first one of the first villains that could be a, an equal competitor to Bond, and you see that in this opening sequence. You, you want to follow this guy, you want to follow this character, Christopher Lee's character, through the film. You want to see how he develops and how he evolves. It's a really good introduction to him, um, which is great. I mean, there's sort of kind of similar tones to Diamonds Are Forever about it. It's got a little bit of that eeriness. Obviously, the shade, the shady tree guy, but just the, the the soundtrack and the there's a little bit of eeriness and even you know like the golden gun is it like in a crow or in a raven or there's something that's just yeah. a little bit what is weird that? about I don't know um, and it's those things that just make you feel a little bit unsettled and I'll be honest I know I've seen criticisms like Essential Bond the book goes goes in hard on this film and it says you know as soon as you see a waxwork of James Bond you just know that in the finale Bond's gonna pose as that. I'm going to be honest, and, and obviously I was young, I never thought that, so when I watched that as a child, I didn't have those thoughts, but uh, I don't know, what Matt, what are you thinking? I, th- I think, even if you think that, what, what's wrong with that? I, 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 like, this opening um, is, you know, so, so some of the Bond films, the opening is completely separate, maybe a one-off mission. Some of them, it sets up the sort of plot of the film, or the scheme of the villain, or something like that. This one presents you with the character of the villain which is really interesting mm. and i think if you you know maybe it's because i've because i've watched it i'm almost going to say the opposite of you harry that like it's saying this guy is going to go one-on-one with with scaramanga and look you know look he comes up you know he comes up completely short against this unbelievable guy who doesn't even have a weapon and then you know he's able to shoot him with one bullet and and that guy who's had loads of loads of chances interestingly i don't know why the silencer doesn't uh, you know, do more of it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I think I I think even if you do take what the essential bond is saying there, good. Like it's building up. Like mm. yeah, Bond's gonna have to go through all that in order to, you know, or he might have to go through yeah. all that or some of it in order to get the better of this unbelievable opponent. Yeah, my thoughts on the on the start, the opening scene. I think it's really good. I really like it. I know that Bond isn't there, but actually, it's really entertaining. I know Rob's not here, so I think we just need to give a quick shout-out to the first time we see Knick-Knack. He is carrying a bottle of Tabasco sauce. I think it really sets up Chase. It's very intense, the the fight between Rodney and um, Scaramanga. It gives this whole new world, which is of intrigue, and I think that's brilliant. I think we see a lot of good stuff between Nicknack and Scaramanga there. I think we realise that Nicknack isn't necessarily loyal to Scaramanga. They have a respect for each other, but they would quite he'd quite happily stab him in the back if he needs to. And Scaramanga actually uses that as motivation. He wants Nicknack to get the best assassins around to test him. He, he's happy to put his life at risk with that. I think it's a fantastic, imaginative gun duel. My one frustration with it is actually the use of Bond at the end of the model. Not that I have a problem with Bond being a model there. Not that I think about the logistics of how did they get that there or anything of the sort like that. More that it is setting up a plot that this film is going to be about Scaramanga wanting to kill Bond. And unfortunately for the film, it doesn't go down this route. If it did, I think this would be a much better film. I think that there is a lot of mystery and a lot of intrigue, and we are set up to think that this film is about Scaramanga wants a duel with Bond to be see who the best assassin is. 
And actually, it's none of that stuff because that bullet was sent by Miss Anders. And instead, they have to crowbar in this um, energy crisis plot that seems to come very left field out of nowhere and just seems to be a bit of a token aspect to the film. When really what we're interested in is Bond versus Scaramanga. And I actually think that whole aspect could have been could be superfluous. We could have just got rid of it. And the film would have been far, far stronger if it was just a game of cat and mouse between the two. Yeah, we will get when we get to the first M scene, it is almost like it's a coincidence, of course, it's meant to be. I didn't realise this that Bond's other mission that he was keen on to do is to do with the energy thing. And actually, they're both connected. Yeah, if, we, if, if we're going to be critical like we were at Skyfall, you could say that's ridiculous, what are the chances, fair enough. But anyway, we will get to that. But Yeah, no, I think John's right in what he says and is also right to point out the, the intrigue with this character, Nicknack, his role in the film and his relationship with Scaramanga. What what does Nicknack want throughout the whole film? You never really know what Nicknack wants. Although I... As when I was reading up about it, there were some sort of parallels made with his character and someone from Pink Panther who I'm not familiar with, but someone who the villain purposely employs to recruit people to test him. So it's 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 like, although Nicknack d- maybe he does want these people to beat Scaramanga, but that's I think that's why he's hired. It's Nicknack's job t- to find these people who will run Scaramanga really close to the wire. So I don't know. What Nicknack, it still doesn't make it clear what Nicknack wants um, from from these these challenges, but I think Scaramanga wants Nicknack to Scaramanga wants Nicknack to put the toughest opponents in front of him. He wants the challenge again from an artistic point of view. There's six foot five Christopher Lee, and then you've got was it three foot eleven Herb Villachere. Well, it's deliberate, isn't it? He's pretty much twice the size of the guy in the henchman episode, which Stephen was on. It's like, is Nicknack a henchman? I mean, sort of in, in his general day-to-day business, but he's not, is he? He's not, he's not a physical threat at all because Christopher Lee is the physical threat, Scaramanga's the physical threat, and he's just got him there as the dog's body end to do the dirty work, to do the hard work. Just to go back a bit, because we really are going to massive detail on this uh, <laughs> this opening. Yeah. yeah, so Nicknack, first of all, we see him carrying the champagne, have to mention before the the, the most gorgeous tracksuit, lovely ice white swimming shorts from Scaramanga. I I was when I was uh, watching one of the the documentaries about the making of it. Apparently, because Christopher Lee is he's quite a fairly pale guy, they had to just because if he lives in Thailand, he's, he should have a massive tan, shouldn't he? Anyway, so they, he was painted every day, like spray tanned or whatever, yeah. Yeah. and then it had to be washed off every day. Apparently. So. Interesting. Um, Very, yeah. Yeah, it's just so, like, we we will go through it so, and it's a bit like what John says. It's like isolated bits of the most iconic visions and images and scenes and stunts. It's just, I understand the criticism maybe, getting it all together into a coherent story and thread and consistent tone and all that. But that, I mean, that's so iconic already. You know the Anders swimsuit. Is, you know, it's pretty iconic. <laughs> in the, I don't know. It's just you know, growing up seeing all these things. I know John is a is a fan of this character, so we'll, we'll, we'll hear more about that. If you had a wish, you could pick one tracksuit, Scaramanga's tracksuit, or Rogers the Lure <laughs> yeah. effort from a Butech. <laughs> but both the men in the fifties. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> Debenhams are selling yeah. them. 
<laughs> might be closed by the time. Yeah, yeah. By the time yeah. this is released, it probably would have been done and dusted for months. It, you've got to mention the setting as well yes. of this yeah. this opening scene. Because like Matt said, when we had it as a video, eventually we got it on video from America, and in England it would only show in black and white. But to actually see it in colour, it's such a vibrant welcome, isn't it? It's an unbelievable setting. And completely real. Yeah, it's... Like I said, Thailand and that area of the world wasn't very well known at all to Western audiences. So you've got that iconic shot with the, the Mushroom Island, which is now known as James Bond Island because of all the tourists. And Harry, you've been. You've been. I have, correct, yeah. I don't know if I'm the only one here, but yeah. No wonder you love this we, I went... For my honeymoon... Well, for my honeymoon, we went nice to... honeymoon. Phuket, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but we did venture out, and you know, there are lo- loads of leaflets out there, you know, visit James Bond Island. And it's got that, you know, the what it looks like all over the leaflet. So that even this setting, I think... Even to the most casual of Bond fans, this setting is a poster in itself. It, you know, it entices people and tourists go to it. And when we went, you know, it was it was absolutely flooded uh, with, it, you know, it wasn't the authentic experience. There's like a beach that you walk out onto and then you can see that island in front of you. And because the water's not that deep, you can walk out reasonably, reasonably close to it. But there were tourists, you know, from around the world, all nationalities coming to see it. And it was kind of, a, you know, an incredible reminder of how far the legend spreads, pretty much, of James Bond. And to say, you know, this is one of the <laughs> films that's not so well regarded. A flop. You know, there... <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, this one, this one setting alone, and, you know, it's not a set, it's not a, an incredibly designed set, it's a perfectly picked setting, isn't it? It's it's really remarkable. Oh, the, the name I've got here, I don't know what I'm saying, right? Co Co Cow Pink Ham. But of course now James Bond Island. James Bond Island. Island. We'll yeah. go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Phuket in those days was a very small native village. With a very small landing strip. Very small. Cut out of the jungle. And we flew down there from Bangkok. You think of all the five star hotels we've stayed in our time and all the glamorous places. I thought, well, well, of course we're going to have fantastic hotels wherever we go. We stopped outside this place. I thought, oh my God. They put on a polished granite floor instead of a wooden one. We refurnished it and repainted it. Telephones, it was impossible to telephone from there. If you were sent a telex, it would take three days. Guy Hamilton told me years and years and years later that in fact the building that we were in had been the local brothel. I didn't want to mention that. We sent the ladies on holiday, left half the unit in Bangkok, and the workers came down. I was a little shocked. I said, oh my God, how long am I going to be here? And we were there for 10 days. I can't tell you what it was like. Everything left a certain amount to be desired. And we stayed in the bordello uh, and went off to work every morning in a little boat. Wasn't considered safe because there were real pirates there. Which is not one place I've come back to. We had to travel an hour and a half by car and truck to a landing stage, and then from there take longboats. And all of a sudden a chopper came in. And I, oh, this is nice, we'll get a ride back. And into it got Guy Hamilton and Derek Cracknell and the cameraman, and they waved goodbye, and I was left, I wanted to kill him. You forget about the tribulations and the trials of being somewhere that is a difficult place because of what you get on the screen. Phuket 
which today is a huge tourist attraction and uh, largely thanks to Bond. I think we discovered that what is now known as the James Bond Islands. There are tourist boats and the whole tourist industry is built up all over the place. The Miami Beach of Southeast Asia, it's a huge resort. So you had obviously Christopher Lee, Elaine Shayek, who was involved with continuity, Maud Adams, Peter Lamont, Guy Hamilton, Vice President of Marketing Charles Giraud, Peter Merton, of course, production designer, Roger, Britt Eklund and Michael G. Wilson, all talking about production in Thailand. Another unbelievably iconic, one of the opening shots, the, the third nipple's revealed. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a music yeah, cue yeah. as well, yeah. <laughs> I just love it so much. I... <laughs> but underrated that when Bond... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you worn it yet? Does anyone else think that Bond's fake nipple looks more realistic than Scaramanga's? It's in a different place as well, isn't it? This is in the wrong place. Is that what gives him away, the the actual position of the third nipple? (laughs) A ring of hair around each nipple. They couldn't have done that with Connery. No, 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 it wouldn't have worked. Connery and Brosnan, they wouldn't have been able to see that. (laughs) No, no, you're right. He'd have to part his hair every time he sort of showed it. I am Scaramanga. It's on my shoulder. Yeah. (laughs) Christopher Lee in his interviews said when he went on the Bond set, he couldn't believe that. You know how in soaps and stuff, all the food that they eat is fake, isn't it? Or it's, it's cold and it's replacement stuff. But he said the champagne in the scene was real. Oysters were real, <laughs> and even he's even he's even drinking a Guinness. Apparently, that's that was real, like this dark uh, glass. So yeah, they were just having a laugh, weren't they? A Guinness. A Guinness yeah. Thailand. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's like now, isn't it? Yeah. You'd love to go to that island, and well, just to go to the fun house. Yeah, that cowboy. Yeah, <laughs> you mentioned it, Chris. That's a little bit. Is it him or but with a mustache? And I had to look it up. Yeah. It's just it's stuntable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is his face, isn't it, with a tap? So original, yeah. these Or it's the other yeah. waxwork. <laughs> yeah. And again, it, you know, I think this is where it might be divisive, you know, whether you like the style of how it looks. It could turn some people off, this opening scene, in some ways, just the style of it, possibly. But you can't help but admire the filmmaking going on and just how bold it is in terms of style. You know, you've talked about we've got so many iconic images within the first few minutes. And I, I, I don't think not just new James Bond films, but new films in general are as bold as this. Even though they've got the weight of a franchise on the shoulders, the risks they're willing to take and try and move things in different directions is commendable, I think. It's really, really uh, impressive that within this first scene alone, the, the setting out the stall... That they're, they're pretty unafraid to try new things. The shot of the gangster when he comes in and he's in like he's quite dark because the shades on him, and in the background you see the island and the music. Yeah, mm. yeah it's just yeah. absolutely yeah. fantastic. We like I like this film. So one thing I've noticed about some of these Roger Moore films is is that the villains like the finer things in life, and one of the main things they like is Tabasco sauce on their food. Both yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Garamanga so and Stromberg uh, have Tabasco sauce. Just a nice little tidbit there that they have a bit of character. Tabasco. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nicknack's almost rooting for this chapter to beat him, isn't he? Is it now or is it at the end? Of- or does this be mine? So is that the end? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah spoiler. Um, <laughs> if you haven't seen the film before, then 
I don't think the thing should be listening to this really. I mean, yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's a waste of your time and our time. So. <laughs> yeah, so Guy Hamilton, he uh, knew this, clearly knows this guy, Mark Lawrence, and he thought it'd be an interesting idea to have like sort of Chicago-style gangster in a totally obscure setting. You know, where, and you can see him sweating, can't you? And he's uneasy with the environment and everything. Before we go into the funhouse, this is, you know, Chris Pinewood set, isn't there? There's like a bit of his his hideout, a bit of the like a living room almost. There's like moths on the wall, the shape I think there's plenty of Shakespeare I noticed. I mean again this is going really in depth. Looking at stuff I hadn't seen before. And it's like partly formed around a cave, isn't it? So on the some of the wall there's like cave details and stuff. I I'm sure one of the reviews will get onto that much later, but they criticised the the production, you know, in terms of the sets, but what would the criticism be? No, it's not Ken Allen, is it? <laughs> well, he, well, no, Chris, that was your cue. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I love his. I love that that he's uh, like you say the fact that he's the you know obviously referencing um, other Bond films. The fact that he's like the chipped away at the inside and he's built this strangely. He's got a gym with his. He's got his gymnastic kind of. He's got a horse, hasn't he? A gym horse. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And then uh, a fun house because why? If that's on your list of things, if you own an, well, he doesn't own the island, doesn't he? He's living rent free because uh, he does them favors. But so he builds this. He can do anything with this island. So he has a gym. Obviously, he has a he has Gordon you know, chef with knickknack, you know, and then decides to build a, a fun house with sharpshooter themed with. Um, you know, the thirties gangsters and um, and cowboys. What more do you want from? You know, <laughs> you're in Thailand. So what do you? You know, what else? <laughs> but, uh, I, it's pre Neverland as well, isn't it? Because that's the only comparison I could think of. You know, like <laughs> Michael Jackson got all this money. What do you want to do with your estate? Well, build a you know circus, or have some animals, and yeah. have cinema, and have yeah. roller coasters. Like this guy, I, I don't know whether it's meant to be. It's just there as one of the rooms and he converts it for when these people come and they change it all the time I'm just rating my mind racing <laughs> but I do, I do quite like I, it no, is, look, it is like a ghost te- a ghost train isn't it it's like yeah, yeah. it makes no sense but it's there for the reason which is is that, that whenever people come they, they set up these sort of traps to, to throw them you know that, that it is confusing for them but one thing you can get from it as well is that the, he's is a villain who's a trained, you know, assassin. He's a marksman. He's brutal, and he's amassed wealth through it. And it's a one-man operation, and that's how he he doesn't spend. You know, his training place isn't you know a a dull, dreary place where there are bodies and dummies and corpses and targets and things like that. This guy, love, you know, he, he's good at his job and he has fun with it and he spends his money creating this layer that is just like nothing you've ever seen before. It does make sense. He, he, he was born in a circus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 it's, it's, it's true. Remember, his father was a yeah. ringmaster, so it has like a circus fur yeah. vibe, so maybe that's, well, obviously that's where it comes from. But going back to before we mentioned about like knick-knack, what I really like about that is their relationship. I think it's a it's a great. It's, it's, you know that there's like you know there is a respect, even though he's like I'm I'm hiring people for you to be you know to, to to one 
because I want to own everything that you own. And two, this is just really to keep you on your toes. This is just this is a training exercise for for Scaramanga. So, but I love the little that even you know even though obviously physically they're very um, different. You know, the the there is the, uh, there's a lovely dynamic between the two characters that that watching again that I, I really like. There is the, there's a, there's, a, there's a sort of a, a, a fun mutual respect between the two of them. We'll go into knickknack in a, in a sh- well fairly soon, but just in terms of the fun house, apparently, well, yeah, we know it was these are at Pinewood, obviously, no spoilers there. But the yeah production designer, as it's uh, Peter Merton, he he was obviously slightly. De- coming at it from a different angle but it was Guy Hamilton's idea of almost he said involving Bond in Disneyland I don't really know what he meant by that but we've seen the results of it the fun house was designed to be a place where Scaramanga could get the upper hand by distracting the adversary with obstacles Merton described it as a melting pot of ideas which as I've just sort of alluded to it was both a fun house and a horror house there are some skeletons aren't they that literally mm. come out of the closet. But that that bit, there's the shot, isn't there? With, with the, you hear the the laughing, yeah, yeah. and then and then the yeah, head yeah. being projected on the wall, yeah. and it's turning round. Yeah, yeah. You, you could be, I'd, I'd be shitting myself. I know. Yeah. Even as an assassin, yeah. like, what on earth have I walked into? Yeah, a bit like it's crazy. A bit like at Peace Glory, isn't it? I was thinking. I've just realised. I was thinking of Peace Glory. Yeah. Disneyland, that's an interesting... I probably prefer the Neverland reference, though, Tom, to be honest. I'm, I'm, again, yeah, I'm surprised like people didn't... <laughs> um, <laughs> He's winning the court battle. Right, anyway. Um, so while we've said that there was a wax figure of Roger Moore, and then we've also said, yeah, the stunt double was the cowboy, uh, there's another chap who played the Al Capone figure... Into you know when the the music comes in again this is snobbery that the word didactic do you think it do you think that music is being played in the funhouse for the people to hear that or do you just think it's on the soundtrack I think in my head growing up I've always thought that it was playing but I don't think so I think it's 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 not play, I don't you know I think it's purely the soundtrack but it reflects that but I mean I'm I'm I might be wrong I think that I, I in some way I think the characters. The guy is bewildered. Uh, he, he seems to interact with the music. The, there are musical cues to each thing that he does. That I think it's perfectly plausible that that's that's music within the funhouse. So knickknacks like pre- you're talking about like the cl- do you mean do you mean like the clack the clang 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 clang? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's like um, it's like knickknack has been Alan Partridge. It's like knickknacks. <laughs> yeah, he's just he's doing all these little things <laughs> yeah. to toy with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he dims the lights and everything. Yeah, he's, he does the lighting as well. And director's commentary. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But that's interesting, that commentary, because that's a, a really interesting way that you learn that Knickknack isn't on Scaramanga's side necessarily, because he's, he's helping... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Plausible, though. Um, it's plausible. I really like the way that that's, that's how Scaramanga keeps himself on his toes. Works yeah, for me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like Kato in the Pink Panther movies. Yeah, yeah. At any moment, someone could be potentially killing him. Must be a bit of a dangerous place to be. Kra, you know, Kra's just bringing the. Kra, <laughs> yeah. Kra's just hanging about in that big control room, and Maud Adams is floating about. And they're thinking, God, is someone going to shoot me at any minute? Yeah. <laughs> is Kra uh, the technical yeah. guy who uncredited lusts yes. after a good night? Yeah. Eat with the absolute. That's the one. He features yeah. very highly, and very prominently in the henchman episode. If you haven't heard that, uh, it's, it's one of the greatest henchmen of the series. 
<laughs> I think it is. It's in this scene. That, um, Scaramanga tries to go for the guns in the case. You'll have to look elsewhere, Monsieur. So he doesn't. He doesn't get to. Doesn't get. Them. Like you say, yeah. Knickknacks challenging him at the same time because he's he's arranged. I assume Knickknacks arranged all the funhouse and the layout of it uh, for them both because he's he's not meant to have the upper hand at all. Is he? He's got one bullet and he's trying to make it as difficult as he can because it's killing is easy. Yeah, because you've got that like sort of the image of Scaramanga's face, which both this guy and Bond think is him and shoot at. So. Waste waste bullets on that, and then the laugh, which is brilliant. The horror house again. Uh, the foot, the step, the false step. <laughs> he loves it, doesn't he? he loves that. Class. Um, yeah, the saloon and hey Al, Al. Don't hold it against me. Wherever you are, don't hold it against me. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the the music math. I think you mentioned it. How it goes between different variations on the theme song. And cutting into the bomb theme, especially in the the return to Scaramanga's Funhouse, yeah. it's just brilliantly it's, done. That. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, you know, yeah, I've, I've mentioned previously my love when the, the theme tune, the theme song, the melody of it is, or part of the melody of it is used within the film in different ways. And I think this film does it really well in terms of using it as an action theme and also like um, quite a romantic theme, I think, as well with some of the scenes with, with Goodnight and. And Andrea Anders, the, you know. yeah, um, same night. And I, I, I love that, and I, 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 I long for more of that. And the film composer's involvement in the in the theme song, rather than leaving it all to the to the heavyweights that they hire now. It sort of really takes leave when I think Nick Nack says that he needs to look for his golden gun, and then in the crow mouth you see it, and then it builds up. Like, and then there's yes. like the mirrors. Use of the mirrors is incredible, and that yeah. absolutely incredible. Of course, the mirrors were um, copied. Well, not not copied. Sorry, were included in Die Another Day um, in the you know the secret mm. lab or whatever it is where the faceless totally place in the Cuba. It is, that, is it the Cuba? The place in Cuba? The faceless yeah, yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hmm. No, good. Um, yeah, and the and the Skyfall main titles. There's a pole of mirrors there, isn't there? Yeah. I'm just thinking about this. Because there's an obvious martial arts influence in The Man with the Golden Gun, is it possible that the mirrors is maybe a, a reference to um, Enter the Dragon? Oh. Is, that, is that possible? Yeah, yeah, it oh. could be actually, yeah. Complete shot that? in the dark, isn't it? Oh, when, when was that? That would, that would be prior Could have been 73, movie. yeah. Yeah, interesting, that. Enter the Dragon was prior to Man with yeah. the Gun. Yeah. John's the researched that because he, a, he's going to use layer. it as an exhibit later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And in the film. So, I think uh, Chris, you mentioned it the, the whole pressing the button, the, the stairs, how they go into that slide. It's just, it's so, it's pretty well directed as well, you have to say. And then again, we get, it's just like a little roly poly, isn't it? And, <laughs> and another shot in the head, proper blood. It's awful for PG. Yeah, but the the way his body takes the bullet in the flashing lights is so effectively done. And then you've, you've had that, and you're like, wow, and then, and then Bond's there, and it's like, flipping it, what is going just incredible, yeah. isn't it? I love how you, you can, in one of the shots, you see Bond slightly shape, you know, more, it's a slight... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With the gun. 
Al Pacino. Al Capone. Same person. He blinks. Yeah. 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 I love how the kids he's in. Of course, Robert Nero played Al Capone. He did, yeah. (laughs) So were people kind of... Did people think that Al Capone would turn up in the final sequence as well? (laughs) (laughs) If you're enjoying the Really 007 podcast... Why not follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter? Effective immediately. We're not a country club, 007. In terms of Hervé Villachez, a French guy, and he was actually an artist originally, and then he moved to LA in search of fame and fortune, and this was his big break. At At the time when he got this role, he was living in his car in LA, and his job was a rat catcher's assistant. As if that would happen now in Hollywood. There's ab- absolutely no chance, is there? Everyone who's cast has had, you know, hundreds of jobs or, or is or you know, they're sort of gradually led in or they're famous already. But I know it's slightly different because he's cast for his looks as well, isn't he? But the guy's the guy's fascinating. Basically, if you there is this, uh, well, it's not a documentary. It was it was an HBO. Uh, film My Dinner with Hervé, which is about the Times journalist Sasha Gervaisi, his meeting with him, and it's like in the weeks before he died. Slightly disappointing again, but yeah, Jamie Dornan plays the the journalist, and the most famous dwarf Peter Dinklage was babyishly chosen to play the French uh, <laughs> villagette. It's yeah, I mean it's it's all right, but uh, if anyone's seen that. Did he get Fantasy Island off the back of this? Yeah, yeah. It, yes, it, it, that was after this, yeah. Yeah, he played Tattoo. That I, I actually saw the remake, the film, last night. Uh, but it's they've, it's the a Bloomhouse horror. Thing? <laughs> but it... the prem- Of what film, it, sorry? It, yeah, but it's, the premise is outstanding. It's a bit like Lost. Like People are sent to this island who pay to go to the island for whatever experience they want and it's like fantasy reality and they're each intertwining and you're trying to work out who's which and it's such a good premise but it was just done too jokily and it ran out of puff and it was yeah very disappointing by the end of it but worth again worth it for if you've got an hour and a half to spare but anyway but no, the the fantasy island tv series wasn't a horror at all was it? i think i think it was just a bit of fun wasn't it as far as i'm aware it was occasionally on in the afternoons, I think, when I was I when I was a wee lad uh, on repeat. I think <laughs> I have vague memories of it. I believe that um, it was it starred um, the guy from Wrath of Khan. I forget his name. It was also yeah. a naked gun. Ricard- Ricardo Montalban. Yeah, that's that's yeah. the one. Yeah, um, and was there not a control room in that as well? Which Hervey was in. Yeah, was a control room and a plane used to come to the island. So eerily, the plane, the plane. Yeah. yeah, the famous yeah. quote from it. Yeah. Quite a lot of parallels with the man with the golden gun. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He insists on a control room. In yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I imagine it's dated terribly. You never see it again. Was there a little peephole as well? So for him to be looking, but through. still can create a seat that was the right size for him, or you know, he had to stand on it. Bonjour, Monsieur Bond. I am Nicknack. I call him Merve Vichichoua. He was the sweetest little guy. Herve Villachez was a great character. 
he was great, uh, I wouldn't say womanizer, but he had a great deal of charm. We used to have a lot of laughs because we'd say things in French to each other. He used to do quite a lot of drawing when we were out on the location. As a matter of fact, he used to gift me with drawings. He would leave a flower on my, on my typewriter and t type a little note, you know, a sort of little le love letter. He would slip them underneath my door into my hotel room in the morning sometime. So I would type him a little love letter and put it somewhere where he would find it. Everybody liked him enormously. He loved Thailand because there he could be out all night having fun and partying. Hervé had a voracious appetite for the ladies. He really looked quite frightful for the first few hours and was asleep a good deal of the day. I think as a result of his um, efforts the night before. He used to focus his attention on me from time to time. I would just give it back to him and it was just a game we had going. Roger Moore, Clifton James, Elaine Shreyek of Continuity, Christopher Lee and Maud Adams all talking about the unusual habits of Hervé Villechez. So very, very odd guy. He was eventually fired from Fantasy Island because he wanted as much money as Ricardo Montalban. Um, I don't know why he shouldn't be given it, but anyway. But also, the, the main reason he was just propositioning women on, on the set, sending them love letters on this film. And I think Stephen has a, has a little anecdote for us. <coughs> yeah, I, I, I found a video of Roger Moore talking about this. And I, I tried to find it again today, I couldn't, I, but luckily I wrote down the exact quote. So it turns out that um, Herb was a bit of a pest on set and um, was harassing all the women and uh, was going out late every night and turning up hungover. So when I rewatched The Man with the Golden Gun last week, I, I have to admit I spent loads of time looking at him thinking, are you, you got bloodshot eyes there, were you out last night? And, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but, so Roger Moore was actually laughing when, I told this, when he told this story. Um, he said... Um, Apparently, Villachie was constantly pestering Maud Adams. One day, he took her by the hand and said, Tonight, I'm going to make love to you. <laughs> um, to which Maud Adams replied, If you do and I find out about it, you're going to be in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you could, you would never, that, st that story just wouldn't come out now. Or if it did, Herb would be in a lot of trouble. But yeah. the, interview, the yeah. interview that I saw was yeah. clearly an old one because Roger was telling it and he was laughing. The, the sort of tone of the interview was, haha, this is a funny story. Look at this little yeah. sex pest. Whereas now, you know, he'd be cancelled, he'd be gone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Change, maybe change because, yeah. because of his size, the, you know, people didn't maybe take his threats seriously, maybe, didn't they? <laughs> or, <laughs> um, I don't know. Obviously, quite successful in some of them, apparently. Yeah. Some of the women. You have quite long hair as well.
you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.